Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show, giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Uh, we're here today with Mike Slade, who is a, who, or who was a professor of health science services research at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience in King's College London. But you've moved into a new role. Yeah, sun, just this Sunday, so change is very much in my head wow, yeah. in terms of uh, taking on a new role in the East Midlands of England. So, um, could, you, could you tell us what that role is? Yeah, sure. So I'm moving to a new job as Professor of Mental Health Recovery and Social Inclusion. So really trying to grapple with the realities with some of the challenges around recovery and what it means to lead a socially included life. Fantastic. It sounds like it's involving more of the community. Yeah, that's, that's, and for me that's the exciting bit, is trying to kind of go beyond the limits of the mental health system to where the action's at, which is probably in real life, in you know, day-to-day communities and societies that we create and live in. Absolutely. Um, and also I'm here with uh, my co-host Kathy, and uh, we'd like to welcome you to Brainwaves. Hey, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Glad to have you here in Australia. Brilliant. And my fellowship recently commissioned Professor Slade and Dr Eleanor Longden to consider the question of permanent impairment in mental health by reviewing the empirical scientific knowledge relating to recovery in a paper titled The Empirical Evidence About Mental Health and Recovery, How Likely, How Long, What Helps. I personally really enjoyed the paper. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, particularly, I don't know, the... Um, the criticisms um, of the Melbourne Union paper. <laughs> right, well, I, I, do you know, it, it's a very difficult line to tread because, it, you know, if you, if you write something, then, you know, you've invested something of yourself in it and if it's criticised by others, that's not a nice feeling and I don't have an agenda of walking around making other people feel bad, so mm. didn't really want to kind of lay too heavily into a specific kind of other offering. But the problem is there is a discourse going on and it's not a very helpful discourse and it's frankly a very old-fashioned and out-of-date discourse about this kind of view that mental health problems are long-term, probably permanent, it's all bad, you need treatment and uh, you need a diagnosis and it has a whole attached paraphernalia of clinical terminology and assumptions about the world. And to be honest, I don't buy that discourse. So it was really Absolutely. trying to respond to that. I think it's fantastic too because you and um, Dr Longden come from outside of Australia that you have that agency to have yeah. that commentary yeah. Yeah. on what's going on. So I was going to start off with the first question. Mike. So what does recovery mean in mental health? Yeah, well, it's it's exciting times because I think... 20 years ago, the same answer would have been given as 100 years before that, and now the answer is different. So the old answer is recovery would mean getting back to normal, being um, typical, being average, being someone who you know has a job, has friends, doesn't have symptoms, can function. It's, it's just normal in every regard. And we're learning 
primarily, I have to say, from people telling their story, people with lived experience finding a voice, that we can have a better understanding of recovery. Recovery isn't something judged by other people. Recovery means, it just means living as well as possible. And that's, that's ultimately a judgment that each person makes about their own life. And the big advantage of that is it opens up opportunities for change. So it's not now about conforming and being normal and looking like other people. It's about being the amazing, wonderful person that each of us were born to be. Absolutely. I mean, what is an arbitrary normal person? Mm, what is mm. their definition? And of course, you know, there's a, there's a political aspect to that, and I don't want to lose sight of that. I mean, you know, there's real lives here, and I don't want to get too academic, but the idea of an acceptable type of self and an unacceptable type of self is a political idea. And so, you know, there is that level to recognise as well that actually we shouldn't be in the business of legislating or moralising about how people live their life. And why is this definition of recovery different to the usual definition of recovery? Yeah, I I, I guess a litmus test is some symptoms. Old definition of recovery is that we shouldn't have symptoms. That's not allowed. If you have symptoms, you're not recovered new understanding of recovery is that you can live well with or without symptoms and indeed what's been a real learning point for me is some people will talk about their their experiences what i as a clinician would label as symptoms of mental health problems are enriching they give more than they take and that's been very challenging to how i was trained as a clinician but opens up opportunities for understanding the person's identity is positive even when they have experiences of mental health difficulties such as symptoms. There's a lot of hope with this new definition. It, it, it changes the direction. It's, it's, like, you know, it's like you kind of turn and face the other way. So I, I'm struck in my clinical training. I was told all about how to assess dysfunction. And you know, up close, nobody is normal. If you ask enough questions about a person, you'll find things that are damaged or wrong or deficient or disabled. or you know All of those problems exist in all of us. And as soon as someone comes into a mental health system, the, the, the difficulty has been they kind of get stuck in that role as a consumer, as a patient. And you know how can you prove you're well? You, it, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. When you start instead saying, well, what can you do? What are your dreams? What are your goals? What are your aspirations? What... What are the strengths that you bring from your past? What are your hopes and desires for the future? Suddenly you start having a different kind of conversation. You find things the person can do rather than all the things they can't do. And as soon as you find things the person can do, you start having the opportunity to build resilience. And it's a, it's a much more enjoyable way for workers to work, but also provides a much more positive opportunity for, for consumers and, and family members about the possibility of change, unsticking from that difficult stuck point that people are often in when they come into services. Mm, that moving towards stuff. Um, you used some really lovely, hopeful examples in uh, your talk with us just now about how, how you've empowered some of your... Um Consumers, can you share those with our listeners? Well, um, I think I might have given a few examples. So, um, I guess the first thing, though, I'd say is I don't think I did the work. I think they did the work. So, you know, um, just just as a kind of assumption about the world, you know, they're the ones doing the leading. But I think I was talking about one um, person I, I um, worked with who decided he wanted to stand in an election. And um, so our therapy sessions were spent working with him to create his manifesto, to have um, preparation and debriefing about Hustings' experiences and um, what what his central messages were were going to be. And it, you know, it, it for me it was re- it was a real gift to me because it, it challenged my notion of what supporting recovery is because it clearly wasn't therapy and it clearly was supporting recovery and it, it was 
therefore hugely helpful to me in sort of unsticking my clinical stuckness that I somehow have to be fixing the person to be doing my job. And actually, it was supporting him to develop a political identity. And that was clearly both useful to him and, and growing and empowering for me as a sort of changing experience of what my job is. So so it was a win-win, I think. I actually had that own experience in like, my recovery because I went to my psychologist to do improv as well. Oh, right, so I, right. I can relate to that experience. Gosh, that's very brave. I've, I've, um, I'm a psychologist and oddly I have a sideline that I haven't talked about in this visit so far in comedy improv. Oh, wow. So I, I do um, performances and love it and it, it's very enriching to me as a person. And I have never brought that into my psychological work. So, hey, I will take away and ponder that opportunity. So yeah. Thank you. Thank I, you. I took a long way to get there though because yeah. I had severe anxiety and then that was the end of the journey. Okay. I mean, not the end of the journey, but that was, you know, it was part of the recovery process. For sure, for sure, yeah. Skills yeah. And yeah. Excellent. In your recent report published by My Fellowship, you say that the idea of permanent disability in a mental health context is toxic and should not be used. Can you tell us why this idea is a problem? Yeah, it's, I, I guess, linked to what we were talking about in relation to hope. Um, one of the challenges that people with mental health problems have is the actual experience itself. So, for example, hearing voices that are very um, denigrating or persecuting. A second challenge, though, and many people tell us that actually it's the bigger challenge, is getting past stigma and discrimination that follows from those experiences. So someone gets given a label, they start taking treatment that, that changes their, their body shape or has, has other effects. So that there are a whole knock-on series of effects that mean that they can start to anticipate discrimination. So, for example, I worked with a person who um, I thought he, I could really imagine him doing a, a mainstream job. And when I said to him, you know, if you thought about a job, he said, well, there's no point trying, they wouldn't employ someone like me. So very clear anticipated discrimination that was holding him back that was secondary to, but in a way more important than the primary symptoms that he, he, was, he was trying to learn to deal with. So the issue of permanence is that it works against people's recovery because if we're, do, if we're making people accept labels that reduce their hopefulness of a possibility of change and transformation into the future, then we're doing them a disservice. And that's not in their interests, quite clearly, because we want people to move forward in life, not have a sense of having to accept they're never going to have an improved life. But it's also not good societally, because it, it costs money, it keeps people stuck in a sort of benefits trap where they need to kind of accept a whole series of perhaps to them unhelpful labels in order to access societal entitlements and supports that, that they need. So, you know, there are no... No real winners in this kind of configuration, and a much better approach is to be recognizing we want to cr create conveyor belts towards more interdependent and maybe even more independent living. And that means thinking very carefully about the wording and the eligibility criteria and not sort of requiring people have to be really bad and stay really bad in order to get help because that, that can't be a good system. It's difficult though that balancing act of, um, of enabling people to access services without that heavy self-stigmatising diagnoses. How do you see that working with the NDIS? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not sure I have the expertise to comment specifically on NDIS, but I would say it's an international problem. Certainly in England we're grappling with it. Um, for the last two or three years there's been a, an effort to reform the benefits system and it's run into the sand. 
And we have a much politically much more simple system than you do here because we only have one level of um, political governance at, at um, national level. So I think it is an international problem. One of the things that perhaps is more helpful is to be looking at the current rather than future needs and support needs that the individual has because at least right now we can say well the person has these challenges and this might help them to find a way forward with some level of reliability but what we just can't do is differentiate those people who are in reality going to have permanent lifelong problems from those who are going to find a way forward in their life so they're not as present we literally cannot do that other than by guesswork and surely you know we can do better than that Absolutely. Uh, your report reviewed the evidence on recovery and identified seven evidence-based messages that may challenge prevailing assumptions. Can you tell us more about these? Uh, particularly, a person no longer meets the criteria for a mental illness, they are not ill. Yeah, sure. This is a kind of important point that affects people on a day-to-day basis. And what we're getting at here is um, it's a concern that from the mental health system, sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking once ill, always ill. So someone is never really well, they're just in remission. So there's a sort of overshadowing of the rest of their life that falls out of them being once diagnosed with what has been often understood as a lifelong diagnosis like schizophrenia for example when we're learning actually it isn't lifelong and it has some really toxic consequences so the most prominent is probably something called diagnostic overshadowing which is where people with a physical health problem present for example at an emergency department and with a a physical complaint such as a pain in in their head or, or somewhere and their records flash up this is a psychiatric patient and their experience is framed within a psychiatric frame of reference, so they're referred to liaison psychiatry or discharge with painkillers because it's probably delusional, isn't it? And then a tragedy happens, you know, they drop dead of a brain tumour. And this, this is why we have the scandal, that, or one of the reasons that we have the scandal, that people with mental health problems die 15 to 20 years younger than other members of the population. So that's a finding that's been um, well established in the States. It's been replicated in England, and there's no reason to think it doesn't occur in other high-income countries like Australia as well. So there are really toxic consequences to people being seen through a mental health lens, no matter what the situation. Just over the last um, two days that I've been to your seminars, um, sorry, your talks, and... The, one of the messages that I really um, like is that recovery is best judged by the person living with the experience. Yeah, sure. Well, what we're learning is, is that we, we used to have a view it's all about expert judgment. And the problem with expert judgment, the problem with asking a, a mental health worker or a clinician to say, you know, what's going on for the person and are, are they recovered or not, is that they're not very good at it. So, for example... Um, one study in South London asked people who'd previously used mental health services and were now in mainstream employment how many of them had been told by uh, a professional that they would never work again. And the finding was a shocking 67% of people had been told they would never work again by a person in a position of authority. So there are real challenges when we start kind of saying the arbiter of recovery is, is the, the, the worker, the clinician and the professional. And also there's a civil rights aspect in terms of the fundamental right to judge one's own life and make choices and experience agency and empowerment in one's own life is accorded to other citizens in our country. So why not people with mental health problems? And it's very difficult to have an answer to that question, which isn't 
reasonably stigmatising. You know, because there is a human rights issue of people's right to self-determination, which has is a battle that's been won in many sectors of what's called identity politics. So, for example, it wouldn't be okay to say, we need to make a decision about that other person because they're gay, or because they're a woman, or because they're from an ethnic minority. But it hasn't been won, and it should be won, in relation to people living with mental health difficulties. A quote from your talk earlier, the everyday solutions for everyday problems that really resonated. Okay, yes. I think you were using the example of uh, people that presented with a a relationship. That's right, which is a very common human need, of course. And what's odd, as I reflect on my clinical training, is I was taught special things to do for that common human need. So I was taught things like social skills training. And... We now know social skills training is ineffective. People don't actually get a boyfriend or a girlfriend after receiving social skills training. And it also cuts out the normal solutions that everyone else in society would use. They'd get a job and meet a workmate or go on an online dating site or go on a speed dating event or go to a bar in an evening or ask a friend to bring a single friend round for dinner or, you know, the normal stuff. And those normal solutions for everyday problems are probably a more helpful knee-jerk response than designing some special intervention to help someone. So can you tell us more about um, treatment is one route amongst many to recovery, but it's not just that all there is. That's right, that's right, yeah. No, what what we found is, is, um, in a way, this is one of the most fundamental changes. We used to think the job of the mental health system is to provide effective treatment. That is the end of at the ends of the system. We now know from the accounts of people who have personal experience of mental illness and recovery that many people's route to recovery lies outside of the mental health system. So actually, treatment is one means to the end of supporting recovery. And it points to a real system transformation challenge because if the job of the mental health system is to support recovery, then it should be friendly to the idea that people may make choices not to take treatment but for example to engage in a spiritual journey or to reconnect with their family of origin or deal with the trauma that has led to their their, um, difficult experiences and you know there there are some real tough questions as well about society one of the things we know is that people who have multiple child abuse experiences are more likely to go on to develop psychosis as an adult and the risk is similar to the risk of smoking causing lung cancer so that's to say It actually is a very high risk, high enough that most of us would say, well, gee, that pretty much causes psychosis, doesn't it? And if the problem is social, then we shouldn't be trying to fix the person. We should be trying to fix society. So it has, for example, implications for mental health professionals being activists in terms of how we deal with domestic violence and being politically active in terms of issues around sexualisation of children. So it has implications for the role of workers that are very, very profound. Absolutely. I mean, that goes back to the, uh, the not what is happening to you, but what has happened to you. Sort of, um, That's right. I mean, I, I was saying, and for me, this is a learning. I think I, I picked up from a hearing voices group that it's more helpful, instead of asking what's wrong with you, to say what's happened to you. And time and again, I've learned, found clinically, that opens up the opportunity for storytelling and narrative and connection and understanding, whereas what's wrong with you closes down that conversation. Yeah, I I heard that when I saw Eleanor London speak, and I think it helped me a lot with my own journey because I got more compassionate to look at what's 
happened to me and say what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I found it helpful. Um, can you speak to the uh, message you convey that some people may not choose to use mental health services? Sure, well, I mean, it's just a factual statement that um, we we used to think everyone who hears voices has schizophrenia and everyone who has schizophrenia needs treatment, and we now learn neither of those are true. So, for example, um, prevalence estimates, that's to say counting how many people in a population have a particular disorder, suggests that somewhere between 0.7 and 1% of the population of people in, a, in any given community will have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Something like 13%, so one in seven people, will hear voices. So there's a whole bunch of people living their lives quite happily without coming into contact with mental health services who hear voices. And that, that's an example of what we're learning because we never looked before. So, you know, it's a bit like um, the, the story about the drunk... Um, man, I don't know why it's always a man in the story uh, looking for his keys under a lamppost and someone says, why are you looking there? And he says, well, that's where the light is. You know, if, if we only look at people using services, we get a distorted picture of people who may not be using services. And there are many more than we realised. Can you talk a little bit more about the, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Chimamanda Adichie quote you had up? Yeah, so, so Chimamanda Adichie is a, is a, a, a writer in Africa and she, she expresses very eloquently ideas around the power of stories to create or disrupt possibilities and futures. And she talks about the way that narratives or stories can dispossess a people but also restore their broken dignity. And I think that picture is very applicable in the mental health context because if the only narrative available to someone is a, uh, a story in which they are broken and in need of fixing then it's very difficult not to take on a sense of being a broken person whereas if the stories are richer and more nuanced and even perhaps more positive then it becomes possible to value that part of oneself, for example, that hears voices, or that is anxious, or that is depressed. It ceases to be a bad part of me to get rid of, and becomes a part of the whole person. And that creates new opportunities for using that as an asset, rather than as a vulnerability. And, you know, it's one of the most exciting things when I meet people who are working in peer worker roles, is they're absolutely experiencing that transformation. They got the job because of their lived experience. It wasn't something to hide and fear and, and wonder whether they should disclose. On the contrary, it's the first thing they bowl into the interview to talk about. And it's, it's it really exciting to see that, that fundamental shift in what's valued. That's something that's really powerful, and I think everyone on Brainwaves would agree about our show. We're presenting these really positive stories to people to, to help them feel okay about what's going on with them. Um, that might be a nice note to end on um, we're out of time anyway but thank you so much for having a chat with us today it's been a huge pleasure thank you so much thanks If any listeners are interested in reading some of Mike's work, there are free booklets including Making Recovery a Reality 2008 Refocus Promoting Recovery in Community Mental Health Services 2nd Edition 2011 and 100 Ways to Support Recovery 2013 All are downloadable at researchintorecovery.com. You're listening to Brainwaves on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Join us next week at 5pm on 3CR for more Brainwaves. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.